think that if you're not ready to commit to it long term, you see that immediate cut. Investors and board members, they're pretty transparent. They're focused on money. You know, they're, they're, I don't think that they have a nefarious purpose to try and like, you know, hold back efforts to diversify organizations. I think they're going to ask, where's the money? Where is this helping us? We have to find ways to make sure it's connected to the business. And if you just can't make that case, you're going to see it thrown out, but reimagined likely as opposed to, no, we don't care about diversity anymore. All right, everybody, welcome to HR Heretics. Today, we have a special episode and we're doing a DEI roundtable. Uh, our special guests today are Colleen McCreary and David Hanrahan. They've both been on the show before. They're both friends of me and Kelly. Thank you both for being on today. We greatly appreciate it. So where I'm going to start, where I'm going to start this conversation is I'm going to go through what I think like the general facts are of how we got to today. I want to talk about how we have experienced DE&I, and then I want to talk about where we think the puck is going in 2024 and beyond. So I'm going to start with a, a very crude explanation of what I think the facts are today, which is number one, it is very clear with studies that diversity improves business outcomes. That is especially true for companies that are post product market fit. Yet in major tech companies, like think of the biggest tech companies, Women generally make up about 25 to 30% of the population, and Black and Hispanics account for about 12 to 15% of the population. There's been a number of studies that also indicate that bias in the hiring process, as well as in the promotion process, disproportionately affects those populations. And so awareness of this issue probably started around the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, large tech companies started to publish annual diversity reports beginning in the 2010s. And then really in the 2010s, we started to see tech employees play a more active role in advocating for DEI. And so this is when we started to see more employee resource groups, initiatives to improve diversity metrics, and then also the beginnings of consultants and then specific DEI leaders to come in and help these companies. I think the reason we're having this conversation today is what happened on December 5th. And so there was a, a hearing on Capitol Hill with the presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn. And it was about anti-Semitism on campus. People should go watch those hearings and the clips of those hearings and make their own opinions. But the soundbite specifically on X, Twitter, formerly Twitter, is that it seems like the Jewish population is not part of the DEI movement, thus has led a larger conversation into what are DEI's goals, who is included in DEI, and how do we think about DEI moving forward? So I'll, I'll pause there and I'll turn it over to the group. Is that a general okay statement for how the facts of this case are. Is there anything else you guys think I missed? Yeah, I think, Nolan, I, I just wanted to point it out, you know, for the group, if you're not watching this, this is a group of white people. It is four white people who are having this conversation and Americans. And I think we're really talking a lot about American companies in particular, since DE&I has a, a very different focus and, and thoughts. And that is an important part of this conversation, too, about internationally. Um, but the, we're just all four people who knew each other, were friends with each other, were professionally aligned. And, you know, we all started chatting about it. We thought we were willing to go on the record uh, sort of with you and Kelly. I think David and I have known each other a long time. So um, I, I just feel like that's an important sort of overtone to as we enter the conversation. I agree. Um, you know, Nolan, in the spirit of the HR heretics, you know, philosophy on on chatting about these things, right? I think we all know each other. We do have opinions on it. Not everyone might agree. Uh, we also have a lot of shared experience. I think there's 60 plus years of experience on here and just to share and learn. And we might disagree as well. And again, to the, the benefit of our listeners to hear this, whether they agree or disagree, but just an informal conversation was the goal. Yeah, I totally agree. So, Colleen, let me start with you. What is your take on the conversation right now 
about DEI? Yeah. You know, I am somebody who has been thinking and talking about this since the mid-1990s. Um, and in fact, I think, Nolan, when you first posted uh, from one of your podcasts about it, I wrote about, I did my thesis in graduate school on the retention of women in engineering and computer science programs. That was in 1996. So this is not a new topic uh, at all. And I don't think we have solved any of those same issues. I think many of the things sort of come to light. Um, I think we have tilted almost too far in many directions of making it an us versus them in many of our corporate environments, which has created an inability to have a real dialogue about what practices work and what practices matter. Um, I feel like Companies now are in the position of having to either take sides or take no side. And we also are at a time where employees in general, I think, have really lost the ability to have hard conversations with each other. We're seeing this in our entire society. I call it second grade playground where, you know, conversations and disagreements you used to just work out with each other. And if you ran to the teacher, the teacher would say, hey, go work it out between the two of you. That sounds like a problem that you two need to work out. Um, and instead, we have an environment where people are running either to social media or they're running to HR or they're running to someone else to try and solve what are generally sometimes very minor disagreements about how you approach something or how you talk to somebody. And we have stemmed to this, you know, sort of place where it feels like people want to make a rule or this ha is the way versus having an open dialogue and being comfortable and just sort of being who they are at work. Um, because they're worried about offending each other. David, what's your take? Yeah, plus one to a lot of what Colleen said. I, you know, I've been thinking about a, a few pieces I've read recently. Roxanne Petraeus at, at Athena, she's the CEO of Athena. She wrote a really um, interesting piece where she said, yes, DEI initiatives are on the chopping block because many companies didn't see them as tied to the business. And she goes on to say that, you know, <clears throat> if these things are viewed as nice to have versus tied to the business, they, they will be on the chopping block. And then just recently... Joel at, at Paradigm wrote a really interesting piece, um, and the, the headline is, the anti-DEI movement has gone from fringe to mainstream, and, and it's a, a bit of a sort of contrast piece to what Bill Ackman wrote on, on X last night, his 4,000-word essay, um, which is basically, uh, DEI is racist, um, and he's coming from the point of view of, uh, of you know, uh, Jewish people being viewed as, as oppressors in, in, in some DEI movements, is, is his view and so very interesting, like stark, like contrasting views. Um, you know, I, I think that like some of the most effective um, DEI efforts that I've seen in, in organizations have been um, about bringing people together, have been about unifying. And I think there is a trend around division um, within um, DEI efforts more recently. And I say DEI is somewhat distinguished between diversity as a concept um, and, and DEI as like programmatic efforts within organizations. Um, but you know, I, I think about, um, uh, diversity done well, brings people together And Joelle in her piece, she alluded to the fact that some DEI practitioners have not allowed for space for people generally seeking to learn. So if I approach a question about like D DEI from the point of view of, of ignorance, that has chilled conversations, which what Bill Ackman talked about, which is words that we've, we've constructed around DEI have been sort of used to chill conversations and move people out of the, of the conversation on DEI to the detriment of an effort on diversity. I think that's a great summary of especially what's been going on over the course of the last week or so. Um, Kelly, what's your take? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I wrote down some notes um, before we started today. And it's funny, one of the wor words I wrote down was rules, policies. Colleen mentioned it. Um, I've been practicing this and have cared about it since I think I started into it in 2001. And I remember, shout out to Norma Olmos, who I still am friends with, started our first diversity program at Intuit. And I was a part of that. And I loved it. And I've loved it ever since. Um, and, you know, just vulnerability here. I struggle because I don't think we've made a ton of progress. Like, I think <laughs> in a lot of ways, we're, we're at the same place, if not maybe going backwards, because there's more... Like there's just anger out there and there's division and there's, there's more aggression 
publicly than I've seen. And I think maybe some of the world events have sparked that and allowed for some of that. But for me, like I just go down to like the the root definition of this diversity, equity, inclusion. And to David's point, there's a lot of people out there that think about this in all different ways, right? If if you don't do this the right way, it can very much turn. Um, and for me, the 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 impetus on doing it correctly is that belonging piece. I know a lot of people have tacked on the B to this, but I do think that belonging of doing this in a natural and shared way is a prerequisite to be able to do the rest of it. And I know a lot of companies over the years have used quotas and percentage of representation to say that we've won and we are diverse. And that has always bothered me. And it comes down to that belonging, that conversation, that safety. And you can't do that if you're divided. I think that a lot of companies have have resorted, and I understand why, to policies and rules that have led to more division versus less in a lot of these ways. And we talked about that a little bit, Nolan, in our, our segment, I think two weeks ago. Yeah. On the belonging side, you know, I, I thought about this a lot and I, I think it's, it's almost impossible to measure. I think it's very individual and, and, and how certain people feel like, is there actually a way to, to measure that company-wide? Have you, have you seen it done well, maybe said differently? I mean, I, I think it is very difficult to measure, and I, I'm going to, you know, push back that that some of the some of the best things can't be measured, <laughs> like like they just can't. You you know how things are working. I mean, you can look at different aspects, but you know, it's it's it is something that that not not everything under the, the belonging can be measured via a survey or a multiple choice or a scale. It, it's. It's hard to say how, you know, what is the actual metric around that? You know, it's a little bit like I say in recruiting, acceptance rate is the metric I pay the most attention to because I think it's all inclusive of everybody in the process and everything that you've done and all these kinds of things. But then to tease out like where the issues are, you really have to then look at a lot of metrics and a lot of things to figure out where that's at. And I would say the best companies I've been a part of have looked at a number of things and and you can start with attrition and who who is leaving and and how long have they been there and were they considered stars or not and who's getting promoted and who's not getting promoted and um what are your you know what are the levels of people when they're coming in and what do those look like and it's you know I thankfully have never worked anywhere that has had a quota saying you have to hire x percent or those kinds of things. I think we've often had targets that we would say, hey, it would be great if we could hit these. But um, I've never, thankfully, never had to be a part of. And I don't think I would have ever felt comfortable saying you have to hire XYZ. I have had pressure from employees, certainly over the years that have said, you know, why don't you have an executive who, you know, like my last management team, we were all white and Asian. And there was a lot of pressure to you know, why don't we have anybody who's of color, who's black or Latino or, you know, and I used to just push back and say, well, who am I supposed to fire on the management team so that I can go out? And then how do I make, you know, and then am I supposed to hire someone just because of that? Like, you know, I literally would just say that because I felt like it had to be a very frank conversation. Um, But I do think you can look at a lot of data to see if there are people in pockets and even tenure, you know, age. Are there people who are certain ages who who feel comfortable, don't feel comfortable um, and gender and a lot of other things um, that we can take a look at? And, you know, that may not be a big thing on percentage wise is may not a big deal or could be. I mean, you can really I think in some companies I can look back and say, yeah, we had a problem. We had women leaving at a much higher percentage than we had men at the same exact levels in the same exact tenure and potentially the same exact performance. Um, however, we were looking at that. So, um, and I think that does speak to whether or not someone feels comfortable in the environment that they're in, which is to some extent what it, where I would go to basically define belonging. Hey, everyone. We'll be right back in a moment after a word from our sponsors. Hey, everybody. Your co-host Nolan here. High performance and great culture should never be at odds. They're better together. With Lattice People Management Platform, companies efficiently run people programs that create enviable cultures where employees want to do their best work. Serving thousands of customers of all sizes globally, Lattice helps everyone work better together. Learn why companies from Slack to the LA Dodgers choose Lattice. 
Visit lattice.com slash HRHeretics today. That's lattice, L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com. Have you ever had a negative experience hiring an executive? I certainly did at Carta and DoorDash, and that's why I started Continuum, the modern AI-powered executive search firm. Continuum connects executives and senior operators to venture-backed tech companies for fractional and full-time roles. You could post any executive-level role to Continuum's marketplace and search through our database of world-class experience leaders. Continuum will intelligently surface your opportunity to relevant operators. They'll express interest and show up in your inbox. It's like magic. There's no platform fee or hidden cost. You only pay the person you hire, and you can cancel at any time. If you're thinking about hiring an exec in the middle of a search right now or don't know how to solve a problem, I get it. Scaling is hard. Companies like Athletic Greens, Weights and Biases, Masari, and more than 100 other tech companies have turned to Continuum for help solving their people ops, go-to-market, engineering, and finance challenges. So check out Continuum in the description below. Ping me on LinkedIn if you have any questions or head to joincontinuum.com. We actually, in CultureAmp, we've used, I've used CultureAmp at a couple straight companies. So it's just one of many tools that does this. But um, it, there's a question is, I feel like I belong at X. And then you can look at differences by, by demographics, um, racial, age, gender, et cetera. And interesting on that question, that the sort of data science says it has a very high impact on engagement. The other thing I think about, I don't know if there's a, um, I haven't thought enough about this, but um, in terms of connection to social isolation and loneliness period that we're coming out of in this pandemic, the increase in, per- in percentage of adults who feel alone, who spend more time alone in a day and the impact that has on mental health and whether organizations and whether efforts on diversity internally can be addressing that and be playing a role in that. It seems, it seems very zeitgeisty as well, that, that aspect. I agree totally. My last one, Nolan, on that belonging piece, uh, in addition to the lagging indicators, is um, I'm a big fan of qualitative leading indicators, right? I think if if you are trusted in the organization, like I have had bar none, no holds barred conversations with folks that are like, that person's racist. This is going on. Like if you can and use that in the right way, but if you can gain trust and have those real conversations, you can get an idea of what's going on. Um, big fan of the verbatim texts right at Pendo. I think we had 900 or something comments at one point. You can actually get, get a good signal from reading those things. And the last thing to the belonging piece is how the organization is spending their time. How many people are going to affinity group meetings? Is it just like, is it is it any of the supporters, right? Or or allies? Is it just folks in the group? Are you talking about this stuff at your all hands meetings? Like how much is this stuff living within the mechanics of the organization or not is something that we've done as well. I, what I'm seeing now is another camp of people. So call this like the Jason Calacanis is the Brian Armstrongs and the, the Bill Ackmans of the world say we've spent tens of millions of dollars. Uh, we've rolled out brand new programs and initiatives. The numbers and the data haven't changed. And in fact, there now appears to be a reversing. Uh, so like, hey, these are the minority groups like we want to promote them and p- potentially look at less meritocracy. And then, you know, the the oppressor groups, we want to hold them back a little bit so we can help the others come up. I think that's what the narrative I'm hearing from this other side. How do you all think about that? Like, how do you all think about how the how it's gone so far and what we can do to improve it? Oh, I could spend hours. <laughs> spent hours on this. I'll boil it down to two areas that I'll have a stronger opinion on and then I'll let the others. Uh, First of all, I struggle still with the term meritocracy I have for years. I think it's an ideal uh, word, but I think most people and places do a shit job of it, frankly. And so I... (laughs) I think we're really great at identifying managers of all levels are great at identifying superstars and then people who are really awful. And then there's this real messy middle that I just don't believe that most of our companies are really great at distinguishing between. Um, And this is why, you know, like I, you sort of 
infamously or famously, depending on which side of that you're on, like I've moved to this role-based pay mantra and belief and, you know, sort of getting rid of a lot of these, you know, uh, this ex- person does this much better, so they get $10,000 more, those kinds of, like I've looked at ways and structures to really think about how poorly that is done. And then also though, for when you do know that there is this like percentage of people who are truly impacting versus performing in your organization, ways to identify and reward those people and make sure that, you know, the whole company knows that that's important to us and our business outcomes that we do that. So I think the meritocracy thing is a little bit overblown. Um, and that's a word I feel like I've heard in tech for 25 years and and forever. I've been like, yeah, I think some people, you know, we're good at identifying some people who are great, but a lot of times it doesn't matter. I think a second thing on this is I actually agree that we have wasted a lot of money and a lot of time, even more than money, on things that just don't work and they don't matter. And I call it window dressing. I've done it at my last few companies whenever there's been pressure to hire a head of diversity and where that person should sit and what they should do. And I'd be like, look, I'm not doing any window dressing here. We're going to do the things that matter. We're going to put the 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 processes and the tools in place. And we're not going to spend a lot of time on trying to change people's minds that aren't going to change their minds and never going to change their minds. Um, and we're not going to just try and make people feel better because, you know, we've checked a bunch of boxes. We're going to go hire, we're going to go recruit at all the HBCUs because that's where you're going to find a high number of black students. You're right, you will. But you know where you find the highest number of black students in the United States? At state universities. If you want to go find them, they're not actually all at HBCUs percentage-wise. They're at state universities and community colleges, just like every other population of student. Um, and, you know, and so I'd be like, I'm not going to do that. But, you know, like that's window dressing. And so what I think we could be better at is identifying the actual tools and the things that have worked and spending our time on that instead of making employees always feel better um, or putting posters on the wall, just like we talk about with values or you know, I give Brian Armstrong a lot of credit for saying, like, we're not going to talk about that here. That is not going to be part of our organization. And that is a choice that employees can make, whether they stay or go or join or not join. Um, and I don't actually think there's anything wrong with that, just like I don't think there's anything wrong with that for remote work versus non-remote work or all of these kinds of things. Um, I just think we need to be clear. Kelly and I have agreed on this many times. Like, you should be clear who you are. Uh, and I think what we've done mistakenly at a lot of companies is we've talked a lot of talk, but we haven't actually backed it up with actions. And that's when employees get extra frustrated, especially the ones where they joined thinking that these things are going to matter. And then when you don't actually do the things that matter, I think that they get more pissed off um, and are not sure how to express that in many ways. I think it's really well said, Colleen. uh, The one thing I'll add to what you just said is I think companies have more responsibility to respond to to so much more stuff. And that's really over the course of the last four or five years. I think of COVID, I think of George Floyd, I think of like all of these moments that have happened either internationally or, or locally to our country. And now like it's the company has to respond and they haven't been prepared. They don't have a stance on these things. And so then they follow along with what everyone else does, and then they don't follow up on those actions. And employees are like, well, who the hell are we? And so I think it's really well said of figuring out who you are and and being super clear about that at the outset, or if not at the outset now, because like people want to know who are they working for? Yeah. And I just before, you know, David and, and Kelly, I want you to respond as well. But when I was at Credit Karma, and we did a lot of very progressive things, and important because of the customer base that we had and the product that we made and what our mission was as an organization. So a lot of the things that we were also doing and talking about were actually very connected to the business um, that we were in. But I remember when the George Floyd conversations started to happen internally, and we were already building and put into place what I thought were actually best of class processes across the board. And many, we had this role-based pay. We documented every promotion process. We, you know, had job architectures. We had um, structured interviewing. I mean, you, I can name probably 10 or 15 things that we were doing that were, in my opinion, like these are things that we know will actually work and move the needle to do the right things. Not perfect, but certainly do that. And I actually felt like quitting because 
employees were so angry that we weren't changing everything and throwing everything away. And where, why aren't you, you know, why aren't you requiring a slate of candidates for every role? Or why aren't we recruiting at all these HBCUs? Or why aren't we doing that? I, I was just so frustrated for a while. And that's my own, you know, internal inadequacy and, and level of patience and, and, you know, lack of confidence or whatever you want to talk about at the time. But I actually felt like quitting, like I should just go somewhere else. And I would start to roll these things out and people would be like happy and celebrating me. And instead, I just felt like I was getting beaten down for for months, if not longer, over things that were really, you know, sort of and, you know, other people in our organization, we all, you know, sort of had lots of experience with this aligned. Um, but there was nothing I could do to appease employees that felt like for a while. And I just, you know, I really went through a point of like, I don't I don't know if I want to do this anymore. You know, it was really hard. I don't I don't think you're alone in that. <laughs> I mean, we I mean, it's been the last three years. A lot a lot of us, it, you jacked out because you just you can't be all things to all people. And it becomes so weighing um, that it just wears you down. Um, but and I'd love your, your, your all's reaction to this. I could not agree more with the money wasted on things. We saw the articles around, you know, Meta, et cetera, pulling back um, and the window dressing. And Nolan, you said something that others follow along. Like, I, I I very much believe that a lot, not all, not all, because there are leaders and organizations out there that are doing this well and doing this right and get it because it is critical. But a lot of folks have done it to follow along because everyone else is doing it. I have to do it. I'm going to check the box by hiring a DEI leader. We're going to go work with a firm. We're going to put money at it and implement programs. But the only way those programs work is if people make them work. And the only way that people make them work is if they have behaviors and commitment to talk about it and make them work. And I, I just don't think that that's been the case. And my proof of that is when George Floyd and all these things started to roll, I saw deer in headlights paralysis. What do I do? What do I say? Like clearly the, 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 the right work wasn't happening. Like I think it, a lot of it was window dressing. Some was not, but that's what I'm challenging is that can, can we in the next phase of this change it? Maybe it's less money and more freaking time and conversation. But I do think there's been a lot of that, even in the organizations I've been a part of in, in the past, I, you know, just to be very honest. And it's it's a hard thing just to fix, not saying like, you know, it's it just, but I do think that is a phenomenon. If I back up and look at the last 15 years or so, there has been a lot of that. David, where are you at with resources and how we've been allocating them? It, you know, um, I feel that in terms of um, as DEI efforts, just the past few companies I've been part of have gotten off the ground. There has been resources ahead of, there's been a machinery, there's been a training investment. And um, DEI is such a long-term effort that like when, when boards or executive teams are short-term focused, you don't see something there. It's like, I can't see the benefit of this for us right now. It like a lot of things will, will face cuts. I, I know that indeed said that 44% of uh, uh, the job DEI related job postings are down 44% year over year. And, and so, um, I, I've definitely seen that before. And I kind of think about, so performance management, let's take DEI compared to performance management. CEO wants a high performing company. They also want a company that's diverse. They know the benefits of that relative to consumers. They know that for a high performing company, good things will follow. Performance management is the mechanism that we rely on for, for performance in the company. And yet what we see like Jack Dorsey and Block throwing it out. You know, just like, hey, I'm going to completely scrap this. And is that saying he doesn't want a high performing company? No, it's saying the effort that they're pursuing at that time for him, it's just not seeing something here pay out for us, which I, I know in performance management it happens a lot of times where we do all this work and nothing happens. I think that if you're not ready to commit to it long term, you see that immediate cut. Investors and board members, they're pretty transparent. They're focused on money. You know, they're, they're, I don't think that they have a nefarious purpose to try and like, you know, hold back efforts to diversify organizations, I think they're going to ask, where's the money and where is this helping us? And so um, we have to find ways to make sure it's connected to the business. And if you just can't make that case, like 
you know, Roxanne um, talked about, it, you're going you're gonna to see it um, you know, thrown out, but reimagined likely, as opposed to, no, we don't, wanna, we don't care about diversity anymore. I, I couldn't agree with you more. I think the one piece we're not talking about right now, all of us have pre-IPO tech experience. It's the majority of, of my career and, and the same with you all. Those companies are typically run by the founder. And I think a lot of founders were not fully on board with doing these investments and going up, going along with it. And then, but because everyone else was, they had to as well. Otherwise they would face internal and external pressure. And there's been a ton of these uh, stories that have come out uh, in the press about how companies are operating internally. And, and, you know, every company is a mess, right? But founders, I don't think have been a hundred percent on board. A couple have, and you could see some of these companies very clearly from the outside. I think a firm is one of them. Uh, what you all did at Credit Karma is certainly like you can see from the outside, the ones that are like fully invested. Asana is another one that I think of right off the top of my head, but then there's everyone else. And everyone else felt like they were just kind of going along with what the narrative was in tech. And now it's a moment for them to be like, hey, I actually wasn't on board with this thing to begin with. Now let's like decommit. Let's let's completely stop investing into this thing. To your point, David, I think it's like this pendulum, right? And the pendulum is now swung completely towards let's do away with it. And the question now becomes, how does it get reimagined? Like where... What is, what is the right answer? And I'll just start. I don't think there is one. I think it's like the pursuit of an endless goal. And I think that's where everyone has to get comfortable with this is like, this is not going to change over the course of a year, a couple years, decades. We've already been at this. This is like never ending, but how we institute it. I'm curious to get your all's input on this. How do we start to institute this going forward? And where, where do we see the puck going with DEI in the future? So I, I do, I do hear, so I'm now in a position where I work with a lot of founders and I do hear them still talk about wanting it. I mean, I have both, I have, I see a rainbow of options in this and interest and passion. And I think Potentially, even just generationally, there's a group of people who grew up that this is something they think they're supposed to do and they just are doing it or they've heard about it or they think it'll be better for their brand and that's what they're choosing and that's the path. And I, I think it really goes back to deciding who you are and who you want to be and how you want to operate in your company. And you can change that, but then just being very clear about it. And I, I really think it goes back to the systems and the processes that you put in place. If you hire everybody who worked at the same company before, you're going to have the same systems and processes that came from the company that everybody worked at before. I mean, I, I think it's not unlike a lot of other things. Um, your recruiting practices are going to look very similar to, oh, I recruited from blah, blah, blah. And that's the only way to go. I think comp ends up that way. I think performance management, to David's point, ends up that way. I think um, and I think DE&I ends up in the same camp and that's why we end up throwing shit on the wall and just saying like, well, that's what the last company did or all these other companies did. So it must work instead of stepping back and saying like, what are we trying to do? What are all of the options in the toolkit to do this and which ones will work for us? That's hard. It takes time. It takes expertise. You, you, you know, you have to bring in or have other voices at the table or be willing to listen to other options. Um, and it is long-term and you might not see how it's actually working for a while. And we are and you know, tech in general, more than I think a lot of other industries is very, are very impatient. And so, you know, are we willing to stick with that? If it's, you know, I, if I look back at my role-based pay thing, the fact that some founder CEO let me do that after being at a company for six months and I'd never tried it before, I'd never seen it, you know, I sort of was working with a team to come up with this idea of how to, how to do it is insane, actually, if I if I think back. But part of it was we they had so many problems, and there are only 400-ish people when I was there. They had so many problems with compensation, and it was so noisy, and it was so painful that they were willing to try anything. And I think this is one of those other areas where 
you are going to find people who it's so painful or they just want to try something who will innovate and come up with some ideas and whether or not we can get those to gain traction or adoption is a whole a whole other story but let's be real too we have made progress i don't want to i'm thinking back to <laughs> david worked at ea when i was there i don't there was a vp there when I was pregnant and I said, oh, you know, oh, I'm, you know, I'm blah, blah, blah. I'm pregnant. I think I was finally looking pregnant. And he was like, oh, I wondered why you weren't just getting fat. Oh, okay. And then when I came back to work, he was like, don't worry, all that weight's going to come off you. And then slap me on my ass and, and kick me out of my way. I didn't think that I was going to run to HR. I just thought he was like a dirty old man. And, you know, thank God he wasn't managing a ton of people. And I wasn't in HR yet. But, you know, also like, I didn't think anything about it, but I don't think that that would happen as often now. So I'm glad to hear that. I also had a manager who at one point in time, uh, I managed a team of a bunch of engineers, all males, and one of them had very poor metrics and I gave him a very low review score. And he complained to my manager that the reason that his metrics were poor is he was distracted because my shirts were too tight as his manager, at which my manager gave me that feedback and told me to wear looser shirts. So. I got to tell you, we've come a long way. And I do think there is a world that we should remind people as well that like progress takes time and it's going to be a long time and we can't expect everybody to change their behavior overnight, but we can identify when things are not correct and we can put things in place. And some of these very, very blatant things we can just, we, we do now say like, that is not cool. We are not doing that. And that is not acceptable here, which is something I think that happened on December 5th that they should have said. It is not okay to say that people don't deserve to live. Like, there's no context to that. Like, that would have been a very easy thing. We should have just done it. That is a great point. The, the standards for behavior have definitely improved. You're, you're right. Um, you know, Nolan, your question is very difficult, you know, and I, I, would, I would hope that humans are logical enough that it's not a it's not an on or off button. It's not we're doing it or we're not. And I I very much hope that this this wave doesn't kind of swoop in a bunch of we're done. Like that that is the wrong answer. Um I do think we we do need to evolve and I guess my my two cents on that is to maybe stop expecting every company to be great at this. Right. I, I, to Colleen's point, you, you choose who you are. And sometimes it takes fewer great examples to make bigger change than everyone kind of playing along with something. And so for me, right, it's like if I if I go into an operator role again at some point, you choose that company where the behavior is first, not the money in the programs. When the rubber hits the road, the pressure and the short term things come up. Do you make that exception for X or not? And I think that those companies, those people exist, and I, I hope they rise. Um, and we can follow what they're doing differently, perhaps in a different way than the window dressing we talked about before. That's a great, great call, Kelly. Um, I, I read an interview with Deb Blue, CEO of Ancestry, the other day. And the very first question from the interviewer is, What are you most looking forward to in 2024? And she said two things. Global expansion and furthering DEI efforts. We're continuously working to bring our products to new regions across the world. We're also looking to further our DEI efforts internally and with our platform because bringing new diverse voices and stories to the table will only strengthen our business and product. And I, I think like when you have that in the in the top, like this is like I'm, I'm activated. I get it. Like this is a passion for me. Uh, uh, there's a lot of progress can be made when it's feeling as though I'm pushing this up the hill and it's not on the priority, you know, for the executive team you know, then it, then it's maybe not going to be a strength that emerges from us two years from now when we're back in hiring mode. And like, gosh, I wish we made this a priority back then. So I, to, you know, to Kelly's point, and Colleen, you, you say this as well, I think there's going to be probably smaller number that are passionate that actually, to their to their credit, will emerge with strength on this because they've, they've chosen when others are going this way, we're going to actually choose to double down on our efforts. And we're maybe going to do it a little bit differently than others have done it. The Colleen, a couple of things that you said that I thought were just so great is like behaviors have changed. Now they're not perfect, but they absolutely have changed. My mom was a paralegal growing up when I was eight years old. I got chicken pox. She took the day off to like take me to the doctor and she was terminated for taking that day off. And so like that today, it does happen, but not 
near to the amount that it happened in the past. Um, I, I also want to say that like companies are imperfect. You know, I, I think employees feel like the leadership cabal like has all the answers. And it turns out they don't. Like it turns out they're figuring shit out as they go along and and learning and tinkering and experimenting with things. But I really agree with what you said about choosing who you are. I will add to that and say, you have to deal with the trade-offs once you choose. And your point around, because I tried, I tried role-based pay. And what I didn't realize when I tried it is that managers would absolutely hate not having discretion to for their own teams. I, I didn't realize it. And I got so much fucking pressure that we had to do away with the program like immediately because they were like, well, I can't reward my top performers and like, oh, we're going to lose our best people. None of that was, we, we weren't losing people. They were just projecting their dislike for the program. And it became clear to me that it was like, this is a non-starter here. And, and so if you say you want to um, have equality of opportunity, then that needs to show up in your programs. If you say you want to be inclusive as a culture, then that needs to show up in your programs. And you need to be okay when things outside of that, like you can't just, you can't be everything for everybody. I think Kelly, you said that really well earlier. And let employees vote with their feet. If they want to be there, great, they'll stay. If not, they should leave. And it's better for everybody. I just saw on Twitter Amen. the other day, I just saw on Twitter the other day that it was like uh, uh, 5% of employees cause 95% of like the internal problems internally. And I was like, oh my God, like that resonates so deeply. And instead of trying to cater to those people, just let them go please let them go. Like that doesn't, they're not, they're not happy. We're not happy. And it's not the company we want to be. And we shouldn't try to cater to them. Oh yeah. I, I mean, I'm infamous for the on the bus, off the bus. Like you can choose to get, you are adults. We're talking about adults. Like you were, you can choose to get off this bus any day. Uh, we will welcome that for you. And thank you for your service. I don't have any issue with that whatsoever. Uh, and I think when, you know, I, I've said this, I think publicly before and some things like when you build I said, oh, when I build programs, there's 10% of the haters and I just ignore them. And there are 10% of the always love everything. And I ignore them too. Like, yeah. just focus on the 80% in the middle and know <laughs> that like someone's going to hate me and someone's going to love me. And I can't tune to either of those or nothing will ever get done. <laughs> I mean, I, and, you know, I love to talk about the gray Nolan and kind of how things aren't always easy. The, we make it that some people might be listening and say, what a bunch of bullshit. That sounds like it, that may sound very easy. It's really hard to do. Like, right. We've all been in the pre-IPO companies with first time founder CEOs and they're all over the place and they're pressured and they're confused. And they've never worked with people. They've never scaled a company. They're fucked up. And they're like, ah, and that employee pressure can be very daunting and very real. I mean, I felt it, especially early in my career. And it's very easy to say, oh, just kidding. Oh, yeah, you're right. Oh, yeah, we're going to be this now. And I empathize with that. And so I, I just offer that that is a journey that is almost like a skill set that might come with gray hair and scars and maybe not caring as much what everyone thinks. But getting to that point, you can't just say, great, we're going to do this tomorrow. So it, it that is a journey in itself. Friends outside of work. <laughs> That's what I say. Yeah. Friends outside of work. I'm good with that. <laughs> there was probably a moment for many like chief people officers and CEOs in the past couple of years when it was like every week, there's like, hey, are you going to comment on the societal issue going on right now? And it's like, I don't know anything about Ukraine. Why? why we don't even have employees there. Like, why? And and there was like light bulb moments where like, you know what? We're going to have to choose who, who we are and who we're not. And, and you know, sort of what our what our in our culture, what's important to us, because you can't be everything. I think right now, because so many companies have gone through risks this year, um, the culture has been disrupted. And who we are, like who, who is remaining with us, um, you know, what their sentiment is. It's a lot of sort of ripeness for like going back to who you are, your values, your culture. Um, diversity may be a very essential part for, for many companies as they, as they think about that again. Um, but that's an important area for, I think, CPOs to go to when you've gone through that much change. Yep. I, I totally agree. Yeah. And it might make things easier. 
I mean, jumping into that now will help you later. So take advantage of that time. Actually see it as an opportunity, not a daunting, terrible thing. Yeah, I, you're, you're so right about like the, the rifts have, I think, encouraged a, a large swath of companies to just not care about this stuff. And if you are building a real business, like now is actually the time to figure it out uh, versus like, oh, like all we care about is making profit. Like that's that's not going to sustain it's not going to drive your best people. Like you do need to figure out what you stand for and what you don't. I want to just, I want to end with um, just looking forward to this year and, and what you all think. I'll just lead with what I think. Um, my take is, is that the, the pendulum, it feels like it's completely swinging the other way. I, I do think we're going to start to see more of a, a, a swing to the middle. I have been a part of companies that have said for this role, we are hiring this gender. And I think that those sorts of things are going away. Um, they are illegal, but like that has happened. If you talk to exec recruiters, they will tell you that has happened over the course of the last five to 10 years. I think that's going to go away. I think the other thing that we're going to see a lot more of is even though it feels really polarizing right now, and it feels like you have to like choose these like two separate camps of what side are you on? I think more people are actually going to realize that they have a lot more in common with each other and that ultimately like people are good to their core and they want equality of opportunity. And I think we're going to start focusing a lot more on equality of opportunity uh, this year, as opposed to equality of outcome, which I don't think is going to be part of the narrative moving forward. What do you guys think? That's really well said. Um, There's a prediction from the Neuro Leadership Institute that DEI in 2024 is going to be uh, more of an expectation of leadership as opposed to standalone efforts. Um, and this is kind of goes back to, you know, like uh, the CEO's chief diversity officer. You know, when I think about the best DEI practitioners, so people who are passionate about it, who want this to be their career, some of the greatest success I've seen from, um, from DEI practitioners has been in community building. So in bringing people who have like natural differences, there's awkward, there's tension here, bringing them together to basically make better teams, to make the company better, to, to create, to strengthen bonds internally where you have different languages spoken, coming from different, like wildly different point of views. Like we acquired this company and there's this tension, there's this discord, you know, really good DEI practitioners I've seen are, are community builders. And we need that um, in the organizations that are sort of coming out of this year, fractured, you know, rift, disrupted in society, what we're seeing in terms of fractures, there's a, there's a big need for community building and perhaps, you know, in the reimagining of DEI, as it sort of faces some headwinds, there's a reimagining here, much like performance management gets reimagined every once in a while. Maybe there's something there that emerges with strength. I agree. My, my, my two cents, you know, DEI practitioners, just like HR practitioners, right? They, they are the facilitators, of this. They are not the owners of, um, just as people officers are the facilitators of culture, they do not own culture in my opinion. So I think I completely agree with you, David, on that front. Um, my two cents also is I think the most success we're going to see is that organizations are becoming more human. Uh, the last three years have been extremely hard and, and I've personally seen and felt and heard more humans interacting as humans through this in sharing stories or hardships or successes or just helping each other emotionally and talking versus these lumbering programs. And I think that that middleware of all this is going to help help this go in the right direction. Yeah, I would I'm plus one to everybody. Um, I do think the other piece of this is we are going to see a continued conversation. And I think companies are going to get forced into stating more clearly who they are and what they stand for, which I actually think is a good thing. I I think the, you know, I'm going to keep banging this drum, but like, speak out, say who you are, be okay with it and let people make those choices for themselves um, instead of all of the follow on. And this is the way we have to do it. Um, I would love for DE and I to not be a thing. Honestly, like I, I used to chafe at the idea that this is an HR thing and it sits in HR or reports to the CEO or whatever. Like, I think it just really waters down the message over time. And the the more I talk about it, and I have worked with some amazing DE and I, both leaders and outside 
folks who come in and create these great dialogues and give us some ideas on great practices and people want to contact me, I'm more than happy to refer you to some of those people who do the process work well. Um, But at the end of the day, you know, to your point, Kelly, this isn't something that it sits in HR and HR has to own. It either happens because we decide that we are all committed to these are the practices that we believe in and this is how we're going to operate or you don't. And that is internally as well as externally. So don't go putting all sorts of pretty faces on your website if that is not who you are um, and stop pretending. And, you know, same things happen all over the place. I got a senior in high school right now and I'm in the middle of the college search. And, you know, I will say like we did visit, you know, we visited probably 20 something universities and we were on a college tour somewhere. And my son turned to me and said, this is the whitest school we've ever been to. And I, I did say like, oh, yeah, you're right. Like, yeah, they didn't even try. Like there was even none of the tour guides, none of the students like, OK. And I said, but at least you know who they are. Like you can use that in your decision making. Um, and so, you know, I think we should just be be more real and be more honest. And I think employees, because of all the layoffs and because of what's been going on, are going to be smarter about this over time um, and start to own more of those choices. Yep. And, and ultimately, it's on them of what where do you want to work? Vote with your feet. You vote with your feet. So look, it, this is the, it's, we're in January of, of 2024. Uh, I, there's going to be a lot more discussions around this topic this year and beyond. Our commitment is we're going to continue to have this conversation, even though if I'm being really honest, it's super uncomfortable. It's tough to have this conversation. It's, it, words get misrepresented. I'm sure we said things here that weren't worded perfectly but the intent of the pod is to open up the dialogue and to actually have a discussion. And so I just want to thank Colleen and David from the bottom of my heart for having this discussion with us, uh, for, for really like going into uncharted territory, because these conversations haven't been allowed in our discourse, in our industry like this. So that's our commitment from me and Kelly. And so thank you to you guys. We will have more of these conversations coming out this year. And I can't wait to hear your feedback on this episode. Plus one. Thank you both so much. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thanks, guys. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.